1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: I think I can.
3: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxey. I
2: think I can.
3: And this... Is ReSound.
2: I think I can. I think I can.
3: Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio gems we are determined to share with you. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we
4: hear each week.
5: Determination to succeed is an
4: important factor in success. When things go wrong, do you say, I can't? Do you say, what's the use?
3: I wouldn't call myself lazy, except that sometimes I do a heck of a lot of nothing for long periods. Other times, I'm driven to the point of sleeplessness. Now, what's the difference between my two all-or-nothing states? Well, I wish I knew, so I could harness the determination of, say, a great leader, athlete, or artist, and lose the lazy Today on ReSound, we present great stories that feature a lot of dogged perseverance that created big change, from solving a cold case to amending the U.S. Constitution. That's big. Really big. Can't get much bigger than that. Stay with us. teachers find all sorts of ways to motivate their students. Doling out bad grades isn't usually one of them. But in the story you're about to hear, a slash of red ink at the top of a paper literally changed history, as Matt Largie explains.
0: This is a story about how one regular person, one extremely dedicated, extremely vocal energetic person, can move the machinery of government by sheer force of will. That person was this guy, Gregory Watson, and it all started back in the spring of 1982.
6: I was taking a class here at the University of Texas. It was a government class, and the professor's name was Sharon Waite. I'm
1: Sharon Waite.
6: And she gave us an assignment of write a paper about a governmental process.
1: Oh, yes, you were to write an essay And since I had concentrated on the Constitution and the amendments, many students chose to write on the Constitution and the amendments.
0: Before we go any further, I want to take a second to do some remedial civics. You've probably heard of the Constitution. It's been in the news a little bit lately. It's the foundational document of this country. So it's kind of important and it's really hard to change it. You have to get two-thirds of Congress to approve an amendment, and then you need three-quarters of state legislatures to ratify it, 38 states in all. So it's really hard, and that's by design. Yes, yes. The founders saw this as higher law. That's Zach Elkins. He's a professor at UT Austin, and he turned me on to this story.
7: And so in some sense, should be beyond the reach of uh, majorities and certainly a majority
0: in the legislature It makes sense for higher law. You want something a little more stable. Remember, since it was approved in 1789, there have been 27 amendments. Ten of those happened right away. That's the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, right to bear arms, etc. Since then, there have been 17 more amendments. They're generally pretty big ones. Abolishing slavery, prohibition, giving women the right to vote, repealing prohibition. Big. And... There are many, many more that get proposed that never go anywhere. So if you look through these, it's
7: interesting. You can see in some ways where the Constitution doesn't quite fit what people want for their society and politics. But yet none of these things ever come to
0: fruition. Which brings us back to Gregory Watson trying to figure out what he's going to write that paper on.
6: So I'm at the library, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. I pull out a book that has within it a chapter. Of amendments that Congress has sent to the state legislatures, but which not enough state legislatures approved in order to become part of the Constitution. And this one just jumped right out at me. It said no law.
7: Varying the compensation. Varying
6: the compensation for the
7: services. The services of the senators and representatives. Of the
6: senators. And representatives
7: shall take effect
6: until until an election of representatives shall have have intervened.
0: And so in layman's terms, what does that mean?
7: It essentially prevents legislators
0: from giving themselves a pay raise. At least the raise can't take effect until after the next election. I thought, well, that's
6: that makes perfect sense. I see great logic in that.
0: The thing is, this amendment was written in 1789, almost 200 years earlier, by James Madison, one of the founding fathers. It was supposed to be one of the very first amendments to the Constitution. It didn't get passed by enough states. But here's the thing. It didn't have a deadline, so technically it could still be ratified. Gregory was intrigued, so he got to work.
6: It was back in the days when you had, maybe, if you were lucky, you had an IBM Selectric typewriter... And I did have an IBM Selectric typewriter, and I had a few different typeface uh, balls that those typewriters used, and I remember being so cautious about everything, I would take out the normal ball, then put in the italic ball for a court case, and then take the italic ball out, put the normal one back in, and did all this wonderful work and turn it into the TA and get it back with a great big C on it. So I appealed it to the professor. Well, he came up
1: and he said, I wrote this paper and I don't think I deserve a C. I think it's much better than that. And I kind of glanced at it, but I really didn't see anything that was particularly outstanding about it. And I thought a C
6: was probably fine. She came back the following class period and literally flung it at me and said, no change.
1: So I said... There it is. (laughs) See, it is. And left it at that.
0: You know, most people would have just taken the grade at that point and left it at that. But Gregory is not most people.
6: So I thought right then and there, I'm going to get that thing ratified.
0: The amendment had been passed by nine states already, most way back in the 1790s. But Gregory needed 38 he needed to get 29 more states to pass it. And when he told people about his plan, the reaction was generally not positive.
6: The very, very, very initial reaction from, like, guys in the dorm room and stuff like that was laughter and dismissiveness and it'll never happen.
0: And in a way, that was motivating. So he started looking for members of Congress who might be sympathetic to the idea of limiting their own ability to give themselves a pay raise.
6: I started asking them, who back home in the state legislature of your home state do you think might be willing to introduce a resolution to resurrect this amendment from the year 1789 that I stumbled upon by accident?
0: There were plenty of rejections, but mostly he'd just hear nothing back at all. But finally, he did get something. A senator from Maine said he'd pass it on to someone in his state. That person passed it on to someone else who introduced the amendment in the Maine legislature. And
6: in their 1983 session, they passed it. So I'm thinking... My first success story. This can actually be done.
0: So Gregory got out that old IBM Selectric typewriter and started writing to every state lawmaker he could find. And it worked.
6: The next year was 1984. And I was able to get Colorado to pass it. Five ratifications in 1985, three more in 1986. 87 was a good year. We got Connecticut, we got Montana, we got Wisconsin. I've got Georgia, I've got Louisiana. A big explosion of seven in 1989. Then it slowed down to only two in 1990, only one in 1991. But at that point... It was getting very, very close. And I am literally sending a letter to every member of the legislature.
0: After 10 years of letter writing, sweet talking, and shaming, 35 states had ratified the amendment. So
6: 1992
0: rolls around,
6: and I'm thinking, three more states, it's all I need.
0: Alabama and Missouri both passed it on May 5th, 1992. On May 7th, Gregory was on the phone, listening to the Michigan House of Representatives as they voted on the amendment. This was it, the last state.
6: At that time, I knew that the amendment had been ratified within seconds of it happening.
0: After 10 years, his quest was finally over. More than 200 years after it was proposed, the 27th Amendment was finally ratified.
6: I did treat myself to a nice dinner at an expensive restaurant.
0: Now, here's the thing that really strikes me about what Gregory did. People talk about amending the Constitution all the time, but it's incredibly rare because it's a really hard thing to do. But here's a guy, a kid really, who actually did it. This happened in 1992, and it's still the most recent amendment to the Constitution.
6: I wanted to demonstrate... That one extremely dedicated, extremely vocal,
7: energetic person could push
6: this through. And I think I demonstrated that.
7: In some ways, his story is very much an Austin story. That's Zach Elkins from UT again. You'd expect people wandering the streets talking about their grand project uh, for changing the country. And here's... Greg Watson, who is not just wandering the
0: streets muttering about the 27th Amendment, he actually got it passed. Since all this happened, Gregory has been a state legislative aide and a city council aide in Austin. But he's kept pursuing these kinds of projects. In 1995, he got Mississippi to post-ratify the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. It was symbolic, but it meant something. And then there's the little stuff, a little less grand than amending the Constitution. Lately, his project has been getting the city to put up street signs at intersections that don't have them.
6: They don't want to put a sign at Andrew Zilker and Columbus Drive, but I'll keep pestering them. And finally, they will.
0: (laughs) Meantime, as Gregory celebrated his achievement, things weren't going so well for his old professor, Sharon Waite. Of course, she had no idea what Gregory had done. She'd moved back to South Texas in the 10 years since he was her student. When she got there, she tried to get a teaching job at the university nearby. No luck. Which is fine. That
1: just happened that way. But at any rate, I was feeling sorry I'd spent all those years studying and, you know, nothing.
0: She'd look at all the notebooks and papers and stuff she'd collected over the years, getting her master's and her Ph.D., all these ideas and thoughts and knowledge. And she wondered... What was it all for? Until one day. One
1: day, the phone rings. This is about 1991 or 92.
0: It was 92, a little while after the 27th Amendment was ratified. The caller asked for her by name.
1: They said, well, did you teach at UT Austin in the early 80s? And I said, yes, I did. I said, well, this is a professor from the Naval Academy, and I'm writing a book on constitutional amendments. Did you know that one of your students, Gregory Watson, pursued getting this constitutional amendment passed because you gave him a bad grade.
0: Sharon was blown away, and in that moment, she felt redeemed.
1: Many people have always said, you never know what kind of effect you're going to have on other people and on the world, that you'll never know a lot of the things that you have affected in your life. And this is when it really hit me, because I thought to myself, you have just, by Making this fellow a grade he didn't like affected the U.S. Constitution more than any of your fellow professors ever thought about doing. (laughs) (laughs) And how ironic is that?
0: And with the benefit of hindsight, Sharon says, he clearly doesn't deserve that C she gave him.
1: Goodness, he certainly proved he knew how to work the Constitution and what it meant (laughs) and how to be politically active. So yes, I think he deserves an A after that effort.
0: A plus! And actually, that's exactly what's happened. On March 1st, Sharon signed a form to officially change Gregory's grade. It still has to be stamped by some people at UT. But when it is, 35 years after he wrote that paper, he'll finally turn that C into an A. The 27th Amendment was
3: produced by Matt Largie for Pop-Up Magazine and was first broadcast on KUT in Austin. Now, Greg Watson couldn't have had the determination to amend the U.S. Constitution without an exceptional amount of patience. Along the way, there are so many opportunities to abandon ship, give up, toss in the proverbial towel. Just ask a detective whose case remains unsolved. A warning here that this next story contains descriptions of a gruesome crime and may not be suitable for all listeners. Criminals' Phoebe Judge
5: brings us the story. It was about eight o'clock at night and the 4th of July festivities were on television in her office. And we were pretty much all just sitting around doing like uh, what we call doing our backup reports, typing reports, hoping that we didn't get a case because it was 4th of July. It's a pretty big night in Philadelphia and we were all going to go out afterwards.
8: This is Pat Mangold. For more than 20 years, he was a homicide detective in Philadelphia. He's talking about the 4th of July in 2002. As he and his fellow officers were watching the clock, hoping they didn't get a call, they did. A dead body had been cut up, put in garbage bags, and hung from a tree with slip knots.
5: We immediately went out to the uh, east bank of the Schuylkill River behind the Art Museum. Uh, we got on a Marine Unit boat. We drove across the river to the west side. Uh, the bags were hanging from a tree with rope. Uh, the Marine Unit sergeant said, you know, if you feel this bag, you'll feel got like a foot or a, a hand in this one.
8: They cut down six bags in total. And inside the bags, they found the dismembered body of a woman in her 50s. They transported the garbage bags to the medical examiner's office and began the work of trying to figure out who the victim was.
5: You could see by her clothing that uh, she appeared to be a homeless person. So the very next day, I went up to the parkway, which is a very heavily concentrated area of Philadelphia homeless people. They sleep on the benches along the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Someone up there handing my business card out, asking if uh, anyone had... Uh, been missing, or they haven't seen a woman in her 50s, four, Indian, Italian uh, descent.
8: The homeless men and women he approached were not interested in talking to a police officer. He was shut down left and right.
5: I thought, uh, there's no way I'm going to solve this case. This will be an unsolved murder in Philadelphia.
8: This was rare for Detective Mangold. In his 23 years as a homicide detective, he says there are only three cases he didn't solve. But the body in the bags appeared to have been decomposing for months, and no one had reported the victim missing. So he didn't think he'd ever even learn who she was, much less who had done this to her.
5: And the very next day, I walked into work and in a message box. I received a note that said, uh, had the name of a caller, Adam Bruckner. His phone number said, and on the note it said, he may know who your homeless victim is.
2: I went to the police station right up the road and said, hey, I heard you guys were looking to find some information on Angie, and the guy just froze. And he said, how do you know her name?
8: Adam Bruckner.
2: It would be dramatic to say that they were suspicious of me, but they were definitely alarmed that I knew who it was. And so they got my information. They sent me over to talk to Detective Pat Mangold over at the homicide unit.
8: Adam Bruckner says he's always been the kind of guy who gives a dollar to homeless people. When he graduated from college, he decided he wanted to play soccer professionally, He traveled all over the country by bus to try out for different teams. He'd hitchhike sometimes, and he ended up meeting a lot of homeless people.
2: And just had this crease in my heart for these guys once I heard their stories and that they weren't just bums and drunks and lunatics. And I came out to Philly to play professional soccer and ended up uh, meeting some of the guys on the streets and hearing some of the same stories and really believing that there was a chance to help these guys get back on their feet.
8: And in doing this, he'd made friends with an older man named Red Colt and his girlfriend Angie. Adam hadn't seen Angie or Red Colt for a while, and this is what he told the police.
2: I let them know I thought this lady's name was Angie, and they said, thank you, we don't really know who it is. And it seemed like it was just going to go away at that point.
8: But Adam Bruckner wasn't going to let it go away. Detective Mangold had no idea who he was dealing with.
5: It was on a daily basis after that first meeting that I spoke to him. Um, he would call every day. I mean, some of the guys were making fun of him, not to him, but to me. And they kept calling him junior detective. They said, oh, your junior detective keeps calling here. Um, Said he has some new information.
8: The thing is, Adam Bruckner did have new information, good information, and a lot of it. The homeless men and women on the parkway trusted him, and they were telling him things about Angie that they refused to tell the police. The police. So Adam began a murder investigation of his own. He was a soccer player moonlighting as an amateur sleuth. And as it turned out, he was pretty good at it.
2: So in February of 2002, I was just making regular runs down and bringing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, down on the Ben Franklin Parkway. And just trying to get to know the guys and just asking them, hey, what happened? How did you end up in this situation? Really, I was just saying, why are you homeless? And I met first Red Colt, who was distinct. He's about 65 years old African-American. He was pushing a shopping cart, like a laundry cart that was lined with garbage bags. And he had no socks on. He had a, a tarp that was cut out and tied around his head that was fastened with a shoelace under his chin. And he spoke in a way that's so hard to describe, but was just, he was just—he was almost poetic in his words, and he seemed like maybe a professor that had gone bad uh, somewhere along the line. And and then he had a girlfriend, Angie, who was a volatile bag lady, and she was kind of what you'd picture—an ornery, heavily clothed woman living on the streets. And it was a pretty interesting couple. And you know, I, I was really fascinated by Red Colt.
8: So uh, when you—I mean, what was your first actual? interaction with these
2: two. Well, it was I was first talking to Red Colt and I had come up and offered him a sandwich and I was making these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and he said, "Why thank you, Adam, for the sandwich, which contains calcium that will fortify my bones and allow me to sustain a fall that would cripple another man my age." And that was when Angie came up and she was cursing and really yelling about these white MFers around and Red Colt put his hand up like a stop sign and said, why Angie, if you hadn't noticed, Adam here is a white male and what you're saying may be construed as offensive. And so there I was trying to work with these guys and and really Red Colt was the one working with me and I just kind of glowed that he had stood up for me and he had done it so politely and and that was just kind of a buy-in with Angie because she knew if Red Colt was for me that, that I must be all right to have around their conversation.
8: The other homeless people on the parkway described Angie as a caring grandmother figure, someone who'd bring them soup and vitamins when they were sick. So when they heard of her disappearance, they did want to know what had happened to her, but they wouldn't open up to the police. Adam was the perfect intermediary.
2: I went back down to the parkway and met, was talking to some of the guys, and I have this little buddy who's a homeless guy, and he told me that Angie had an apartment, and it totally just blew me away.
8: But Adam did not call Detective Mangold with this. He took it upon himself to go check it out. He went to the neighborhood and wandered around aimlessly, asking people on the street if they knew a woman named Angie. So you have no experience, right? You're you're a professional soccer player.
2: Yeah, no, I watched L.A. Law growing up, and that that was about it.
8: But his technique worked, sort of. Adam recognized a guy in the neighborhood as one of Angie's ex-boyfriends. And this ex-boyfriend didn't understand what Adam was talking about.
2: And so he took me over to her apartment. He said, I swear it's not her. That's her window right there. The window's open. He said, I hung that teddy bear curtain right there. He said, it's the same one. You can see she's living in there. And and from the ground level, you could see that it looked lived in. It didn't look like a place where, you know, somebody had gone missing. And so I automatically had, you know, this, this doubt that maybe I had gotten this wrong. And then I rung some of the doorbells and a neighbor came out and said, no, she's not dead. She's alive. She's in... New York City, she called the landlord and told him she was sick and she's paying rent every month.
8: Adam called the landlord himself from a payphone who confirmed it.
2: And then it was almost laughable. And that ended a few minutes later when another neighbor, Sharon, came up and almost passively, she said, what's going on? I said, oh, we're looking for, we're, I said, I was looking for Angie. And, but, and her face just shifted. As soon as I saw her face, I knew that there was something really wrong. And so I pulled her aside and she told me about the fight she had heard uh, the day before Good Friday and she heard a thud and choking and screaming and it was from Angie's apartment and that tipped the scale back to really thinking there was a problem.
8: In 2002, Good Friday was on March 29th. Angie's body wasn't found until July 4th and yet someone had been paying the rent for the apartment and opening and closing the windows. Adam wanted to get inside and see what he could find, but he wasn't bold enough to break in on his own. He called Detective Mangold.
5: I said, I have to get a search warrant for this location, and we did. Adam stayed with us. I said, listen, I don't want you to be in the dark here. You're helping me out here. I want you to see how this process all works out. He was very interested in seeing how it
2: did work. I was just standing there. They knocked. No one answered. Someone said, get the city key. And I, I really thought there was going to be this really technical city key, and someone pulled out a sledgehammer and just bashed the door in.
8: What happens next?
2: I expected to see a bloody crime scene, but it was even crazier than that. It was... A total mess she was a hoarder and she had not thrown anything away for 40 years she had collected every piece of mail newspapers were stacked up I mean we all just froze and there were thousands of pieces of mail and I mean you name it it was there it was just it would have taken a year to go through and get different things she had everything from a lawnmower up there even though she didn't have a lawn to a detailed account of every phone call she ever made since like 1960
5: the apartment was loaded with all these bottles of, like, ginger and all these different, um, not narcotics, but little vitamin supplements, things like that. And it had, like, a medicinal smell. It was like like you walked into an old apothecary, uh, a drugstore back in the day when you were a little kid.
8: Was there a bed in the apartment?
2: There was a bed right when you walked in the door to the left was a bed, and there were maybe a foot and a half, two two feet of newspaper stacked up with a a bedsheet over it. And one of the officers even thought that there was a body under there and said, oh, here's your body, and ripped back the sheets. But it it was newspapers that were dated very recently.
8: Adam thought this was a really important clue. Someone was bringing in newspapers on a regular basis and adding them to Angie's existing stacks. Did you feel kind of like you were a little kid trying to get the police to take you seriously, you know, saying I might not be a homicide detective, but I can put two and two together. And I think that this is there's something funny that's going
2: on here. I was trying to stay unnoticed, but still kind of whispering my opinions. I I did not want to leave the apartment, uh, but I I definitely wanted to be heard. And so I would pull someone aside and say, "I, I think she was I think she was killed in here. And they'd say, no, no, there's the the evidence it would look different if she had been killed in here. If there was a struggle, it would it would be a mess. Sooner than later I had to it got too hot to be in there and we all went outside and that was when they did not invite me to come back up, but said, you know, if you can find any information on Red Colt, we would appreciate it.
8: This is the first time that Adam realized that Red Colt was a prime suspect. He hadn't considered that this could be a possibility.
2: Because, you know, I had this personal relationship with him. I knew that he wasn't capable of something like that.
8: He set out to find other possible suspects. Angie had restraining orders against several abusive boyfriends. Adam looked into those men, and he talked with friends on the parkway. He studied the place where Angie's body had originally been found in garbage bags by the river. And he went back to her apartment, a lot, without telling the police what he was doing.
7: You know, the things that made him a good soccer player, by like being compulsively working harder than everybody else, he needed to... He needed to find the next clue. He needed to figure out what was going on. And he just sort of wouldn't let himself stop. Here's one of Adam's teammates, Peter Pappas. Just saying it's this guy, but it can't be this guy. But if it's this guy, then how come X, Y, and Z happened? Or how come this guy is here? Why did this person know this? And it was just... Wow, just going around and around, like, why couldn't it be this person? But, you know, Red Colt, it can't be Red Colt. I met Red Colt. I, I love Red Colt. You know, we're like kindred spirits. It was incredible. It was just, a, I honestly got worried for his life. You know, he was, he was buying information with, like, sandwiches or packs of cigarettes.
8: Adam completely admits that he was obsessed. He was calling Detective
2: Mangold constantly. I called way, way, way too much. And because I would leave information every time I got it. So he'd come back in and see this stack of papers. And at some point... um. I would, I would page him, and he'd call me back at the payphone I was at, and I would just blurt everything out that I had found.
8: At this point, the police were certain that Angie had been killed at the river, but Adam was certain that Angie had been killed in her apartment. He was fixated on what she'd been wearing when her body was found. It was cold in Philadelphia in March, but Angie had been found wearing a T-shirt, sweatpants, and sandals, not warm enough to be walking around outside.
2: And that made me more and more sure she was killed in her apartment, which made me more determined to go back in and find something. And so I just kept digging through this paper in her apartment and a couple of times some of the neighbors would come in and this was pretty awkward, but um, I just kept going.
8: Like, I don't understand. Will the neighbors be like, Who who <laughs> are you? What are you doing in here?
2: I mean, they knew that something really bizarre had happened, and they knew that the reality was that with all the homicides in Philadelphia, there just is not the time for the police to to do this kind of meticulous investigation. And so sometimes they would let me in and sometimes the, door, the front door would be open and I would just come in on my own and they'd come up and see me on all fours like crawling around and, you know, pulling papers out from underneath the bed. And I don't know what they said by my back, but they were very nice to my face.
8: Adam says he'd made something like 20 trips to Angie's apartment before he found the clue he needed. Shortly after Angie's body had been found, he went to the river and looked around. He found a piece of paper that said something strange about an underground American currency. He didn't pay much attention to it, except that the handwriting was distinctive, large and blocky. He put the piece of paper in his backpack.
2: And then when I was in the apartment, I saw the same handwriting, and it was like this gong went off. And I realized whoever had written that down by the river had obviously written it in the apartment. And if I could figure out who had written that, it was like a clear case of who had done it.
8: So, how did you figure out who had written
2: it? All of a sudden, I saw these four words that said, This is Red Colt. And all this time I had spent trying to prove that it was not him, it just fell off.
8: On that same trip to Angie's apartment, Adam found a Rite Aid receipt for paint tarps and garbage bags. It was dated three days after Good Friday which is when the neighbor had heard the horrible screaming fight.
2: It became very clear at that point that Red Colt was the one in her apartment. Red Colt had dismembered her body. Red Colt had taken her body down the stairs in his cart lined with garbage bags. Red Colt had, you know, kept the body down by the river, hanging over the ledge tied to the tree with the slip knots.
8: Adam called Detective Mangold and told him what he'd found. But then he also took it upon himself to find Red Colt. He talked to homeless people around the neighborhood and found out that Red Colt had a new girlfriend and that the two of them had breakfast at a certain McDonald's every morning.
2: I let Homicide know that he was going to be there. Homicide called police. They missed him that day. The next day, Detective Pat Mangold went out to get some Chinese food. And from the description that I had given and from a photo we were able to get, uh, he recognized him in the cart with garbage bags lined was the biggest thing. And so he saw a guy pushing a cart down the road and, He said, Red Colt, and he said it looked like Red Colt was going to run, Uh, and all the other police pulled up, and Red Colt, in this poetic voice of his, said, it was prudent for you to call for backup. This was a physical battle you would not have won. And uh, we took him into custody for questioning, and
5: he had over $7,600 on his person in different denominations and pockets all over his uh, clothing. And I took the shopping cart back into the homicide unit. We did a search warrant for that, looking for maybe the tool that he would use to cut her up. And in there, I opened and find a, a Tasty Cake box. And as soon as I opened it, I could smell that medicinal, musty smell from her apartment. It was identical. And I looked in the box, and then I saw there were huge amounts of cash in there. It turned out we called their forfeiture unit, and they counted it with machine. It was over $68,000.
8: That he was walking around in his shopping cart with.
5: Yep. And that's what I thought. I had like that aha, aha moment in the homicide. You know, I thought he killed her for her money.
8: And I mean, who, what, I mean, I thought Angie was home. Like, who was Angie?
5: Um, it turns out Adam did a little investigating in that too. Uh, found out that her grandmother had just passed away. And the family knew that there was a large sum of money in the house. Because the grandmother sold a couple properties, didn't believe in banks, and kept the money in a safe in the house. So after the grandmother died, they found that all the money was missing, and they accused uh, Angie, Josephine Angela, of doing it.
8: How critical was Adam Bruckner in solving the, the kind of the Red Colt murder?
5: Oh, huge. I, I would, never, would not have been able to do it without him. Um, in Philadelphia, we have a lot of murder cases. We work hard on all our cases especially in the summer, like 4th of July August. I mean, the murder rates in the urban cities go up because of the heat and the problems in the neighborhoods. So you're working these cases every day. You get a new case every day as you go in. And it's not like they get put on a back burner, but uh, it it was huge. I mean, I couldn't have done it without him.
8: He went out of his way to thank Adam at press conferences and in interviews, and he even tried to get the city to officially recognize him.
5: I put him in for a citizen's commendation, through the mayor's office, and we joke around about that to this day, but he never got it. I have no reason why it didn't happen.
8: One of the strangest parts of the story is that even after Adam had solved the case and found the evidence that incriminated Red Colt, he still didn't want to believe that it could be true. Red Colt was his friend.
2: Uh, he was one of the. F- I, in my journal, I would just write, oh, "I just wish there was something more I could do about, it, I could do for this guy." you know, it, it was simple stuff. He was writing this Kennedy assassination book and, you know, I was going to help him make the photocopies. There was just, he was fascinating. And he, you know, he defended me when, when Angie came up that first time and he cared. He was genuine. He made eye contact. He was, he was truly grateful for the advocacy. I don't think that he was faking it. I think that he was just had a much different side than I knew. And I think that people can be good and bad. And I think that he's one of those people.
8: Red Colt was charged with first degree homicide, robbery, and abuse of a corpse. He wanted to represent himself, but wasn't allowed.
2: There was a mental health evaluation where he was found unfit, so that was definitely a, a part of the puzzle, but he definitely knew the difference between right and wrong, which was the really deciding factor of whether or not, you know, he would be in a mental institution or in a in a regular prison and a guy that can, you know, clean up a an apartment by taking a body out piece by piece on the third floor. Surely, surely knew the difference between right and wrong and was able to cover it up.
8: Red Colt was sentenced to life in prison. He died of cancer earlier this year. Angie's full name was Josephine Angelo. The money that Red Colt stole from her was given to her biological son. He grew up in foster care. They had a funeral, and her son came. Detective Mangold is now a special agent for the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. As for Adam Bruckner, he's retired from soccer, and he's put his sleuthing days behind him. But he's more involved than ever with the homeless community. He's youth director of the Helping Hands Rescue Mission in North Philadelphia. When you tell this story now, all these years later, do you feel like you're a different person back then?
2: Yeah, uh, it, it wrecked a little something in me. I. So yes, I think this whole thing changed me, you know. Literally instead of watching these horror shows or these homicide investigation tales, you know, I stuck myself in the middle of one of these accidentally. And it just gives you a little different perspective on people in pain and on the world. And so I can't I can't really explain that, but I do know that it just it sat on me really heavily and you know, and it was so sad what happened to Angie. She was You know, she was a lady that brought soup to the homeless guys. And she was in her apartment one day, and the next day she's, you know, she's just vanished.
3: Angie was produced by Phoebe Judge and Lauren Sporer for their podcast, Criminal. Coming up after the break, we talk to Phoebe Judge about this story and the making of the podcast, Criminal. We'll be right back.
2: The problem about being a beginner is that it's gonna suck. But the good thing about being a beginner is that you've got all this energy.
6: On the third Coast Pocket Conference, you'll learn the essential tools for making audio stories from the world's most celebrated radio producers and podcasters.
9: So when I make a piece, I want the world I'm imagining to be so engaging that the listener wants to move there. I want to create an atmosphere that will be sustained from beginning until end. You have to find a way to get in and tell a story that's going to surprise people about something that they
10: already know.
4: The closer, the more intimate, the more immersed you can get in
7: the lives of the people whose stories you're telling the more powerful those narratives will be
6: the third coast pocket conference is where your next great story begins listen online at thirdcoastfestival.org or you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts
1: and that is the only way that you would get from sucking to not sucking
3: Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Today, we have found for you stories of extraordinary determination. Now, these stories have built-in hooks. Not only do you want to find out if the main character got to the finish line, but you also wonder, could you, would you be able to have the same drive? Before the break, we heard an episode of the podcast Criminal, a show about crime, sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and all the people involved in the criminal justice system. The episode was called Angie, in which a gruesome crime goes unsolved until a civilian, a professional soccer player, in fact, brings his laser beam focus to the case and solves it. We spoke with the show's host, Phoebe Judge, and she told us about this story and the making of Criminal. I think a lot of us want to think of ourselves as somebody who could solve a crime if we had to. Uh, Phoebe, do you see yourself at all in
8: the main character, Adam Bruckner? Oh, of course. I mean, that's the... That's the most wonderful thing about some of the stories is that you have a chance to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I think so often we hear stories where the character that we're hearing about that we're getting to know is someone that we could never be. You know, we'll never not all of us will ever be a private investigator or a detective or XYZ, but we can just be this guy who's curious and maybe a little obsessed. And that's the that's like the greatest thing about Doing a show that only focuses on those who have direct experience with something because listeners just say, oh, yeah, his name's Adam, but his name could be Phoebe. I could have done that. Um, We love stories that showcase that part of this big word crime. And how did you come across
3: this story? And by the same token, how do you generally come across your stories or find your stories?
8: This story... But Adam Bruckner came to us in in an odd way. He had told his story at the moth um, and had never made it to the broadcast. But in speaking with one of the producers there, they said, "You know, this guy's story is really amazing. We don't know what to do with it. We don't have enough time to do anything with it. Maybe you could take it on. And so, I called him up and he said, yeah, I'd be game. And we started working that way to get him to tell his story. I was really very happy when we got the police sergeant, Pat Mangold, to talk because I thought his perspective on Adam just made the whole thing richer. But what happens is that we spend a lot of time just going down these rabbit holes of looking for interesting stories. And you start on a the internet. And you might start in typing the word ballerina. And by the end of it, you're looking at uh, two serial killers in 1910 Indianapolis. You don't know how you've gotten there, but you have somehow. And so I think that we're just always searching for interesting, compelling stories. The The criteria for making it onto criminal is just anything that we're curious about.
3: I mean, the rabbit hole stories are the best kind, I yes. think. Yes. So. Um, so this story has uh, some very gruesome details, and I'm just curious how you decide how much of the gory details to include or exclude.
8: Well, we are anti-gory details at Criminal. Um, we are. I am so wary of superfluous descriptions of violence. It's nothing I ever want to have on a show that I'm associated with, and I, I think that that's true for. The other producers of criminal. Um, there's too much of it, and it's too cheap. Is my honest thought about descriptions of violence. So we use it when it's necessary, and we try to do it in the most respectful manner possible. Um, and in this case, it seemed like the details of the death were important enough to describe because it it led to the problems with the investigation. So we did talk about it a little bit. I hope that we tried to talk about it in as hands-off approach as possible but we did allow the descriptions of violence because I think it is necessary to know for the story oh absolutely
3: um this story it also has kind of a big reveal structurally
8: um in terms of the reveal well that's the that's the whole trick of it I mean that's the thing that we hope we do well I mean I think anybody who creates these stories. That's the greatest challenge. How do you keep the listener with you till the end? And how do you decide how when you're gonna reveal information? That's something that we always think to ourselves there's information we have to provide, and we want people to remember it, but how can we drop in these little moments that will make them think to themselves, oh, I need to keep going forward? And and that this story, we didn't have to work that hard because there's so much rich stuff to talk about, but that's always our greatest challenge is when are we going to pull a little bit of the curtain back? Is there anything
3: special about sort of the after effect of this story?
8: I mean, this whole idea about this soccer player who was going out and talking to homeless people and cared enough to do that and then cared enough to almost lose his own job because he became so obsessed about solving this crime because he felt some responsibility to to put his knowledge out there, Uh, I think... You know, it, it just makes any of us think to ourselves, like, just do it. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be doing them, but you can do a lot of things that you might at the start say, no, I don't want to go there.
3: After hearing so many stories about crime, uh, has it changed how you think about crime? Is it any different from before you created the
8: podcast? Are you more immune, more fearful, neither? Well, I'm more confused. <laughs> I think... <laughs> um, I'm not more fearful. All this stuff, all these stories, even even the most gruesome, are kind of just about the human experience. And uh, it's a, it's a curious and odd life, I think. And um, so often, I think we can go through the our lives with blinders on, not not seeing some of the bad stuff. Um, Maybe if we're lucky, we can go through life with our blinders on. And when you veer off a little bit and and start talking about some of these stories, I don't think you get more scared or more sad or more downtrodden about the plight of human existence. I think you, when you really listen, you just start to, well, one, you're thankful for your own life, but uh, you also just start to see people as just everyone kind of going through this together. And some people unluckily have these little moments, which... um, impact their lives horribly but what's wonderful is to see how people kind of recover from it all and I think that's you know the tools we use to recover from things is something that I'm uh, I'm still so interested in and learning more and more about doing a show like this Phoebe Judge
3: host of criminal if you love listening to Phoebe on her podcast like we do then come see her in person on Wednesday, November 8th, Phoebe will be performing at Talia Hall in a rollicking, rambunctious resound live. Other performers include the Neo Futurists, Adriana Cardona of Univision, 99% Invisible's Roman Mars, and me. When but wait, that is not all. We can't just stop at one live show. This November, we debut The Fest in Chicago. Two weeks of podcasts coming to stages all across the city. Shows like Love and Radio, Code Switch, and Reveal. For tickets and to see the entire lineup, go to thefestchicago.org. That's thefestchicago.org. It is going to be so much fun. Last but not least on today's show, there's the blustery, energetic, push-the-rock-up-the-hill kind of determination it takes to change the world. And then there's the quiet determination that can play out on a much smaller, more personal stage. Here's Karen Duffin.
10: The best way to describe my dad would be to tell you about his bathroom. Stay with me. The first thing you'll see when you walk in is a stack of books about whatever it is he's learning then. Maybe science, history, religion. And then taped on the walls are pieces of paper with words from the half dozen languages he's learning.
4: I want to learn Latin, Greek, and everybody should know French, and it can't possibly hurt to know Italian, a little bit of Italian, and some Portuguese.
10: That's my dad. He is the most curious person I know. He also makes his own yogurt and bread, taught himself the violin at age 69.
4: Yeah, I studied it last night. I I worked on the vibrato last night, actually. So
10: So, growing up, our house was filled with music and art and math and science and a little bit of chaos. There were seven kids.
4: Wonderful children. Wow. (laughs) One boy and six girls.
9: Do you remember where I fall in the family?
4: You fell softly and gently at the very end. The youngest of all.
9: Do you think that's why you love me best?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can strike that off the record.
10: The two things I think he most wanted to pass on to the seven of us were his curiosity and his faith. My dad is a devout member of the Mormon Church. His family has been for generations. His ancestor was a bodyguard for Joseph Smith, the church's founder. He and my mom raised us Mormon. My dad and I are a lot alike. I definitely inherited his curiosity. It's probably why I'm a journalist,
9: and for a long time, I also shared his faith. Um, do you remember Do you remember the day I told you that I had decided not to be mormon?
4: uh not necessarily. I think you know the things that uh that you mentioned and all that those were not uh, hidden. I mean, I could see them coming, and I could see where you were headed.
10: I was surprised to hear him say this. Before I left the church, I hadn't told anyone I'd even so much as doubted. And I'd lived this sort of varsity Mormon life. I went to BYU, which is a private Mormon university where I was a student leader. I went to the Mormon temple, which you only go to if you're willing to make deeper commitments to the church. I kept all the rules. And there are a lot of rules. No coffee or alcohol, no rated R movies, no premarital sex, hours of church every week, 10% of your income, and lots of other things. But I actually didn't mind the rules. They were almost comforting, like you had this cheat sheet for how to live a good life. And that kind of shared sacrifice and devotion creates this incredible bond. I loved my Mormon community. What I did start to struggle with was the premise of the church.
9: What do you fear most for your children?
10: Just
4: about choices that are...
9: Mm-hmm. that in
4: the long term will not produce good results i worry about those kinds of things like what i guess uh, if if we were being personal it would be with you when you uh, talk about truth being relative and maybe think saying that a person can f- decide what's true and two different truths can be different i mean truth is not something that changes
10: The premise of the church is sort of that. Truth isn't something you decide. It's something God tells you through church leaders. So the church is God's one true way for everyone. A few years out of school, I became a speechwriter, which took me to dozens of countries. And the more cultures I studied and people I met, the idea of one true way for everyone just started to feel improbable. These doubts scared me. Being Mormon can feel absolute, like you can be in or out, but not halfway. So expressing any doubt felt like saying I'm out. I didn't want out. So I said nothing, not even to my identical twin who wasn't even Mormon anymore. I tried not to even think about it. Just be more faithful, it'll pass. It didn't. And eventually it started to feel like a double life, like doubter on the inside, model Mormon on the outside. So when I got a job in Bangalore, India, I made it a deadline. I would move to India, and I would leave the church behind. It was only from the safety of 10,000 miles away in India that I did what I feared most. I started telling people. I wrote and rewrote an email that I sent and resent. Hi, uh, I'm not Mormon anymore. Forgive me. I thought that would be the hardest part, telling people. But I was wrong. Here's me explaining this to my dad.
9: I've told people before that if I were to name my story, it would be first you leave and then you go, and that the going part is the hard part, because there's a real void. Because I came from a background that is very structured, right? Like, I knew a lot of answers to things. So what has ended up being the hardest part is rebuilding,
10: All the questions the church used to answer, I had to answer myself now. Big questions and small disorienting ones, like coffee. The first time I ordered coffee, I was 32. I can still picture myself standing in Starbucks, confused by the menu, and sure that everyone around me knew. Then, later that year, feeling confused again, but this time by a bar menu when I ordered my first drink of alcohol— I ordered champagne. At least I knew what that was. It was a lonely process. I didn't want to ask my not-Mormon friends for help because I felt embarrassed, like here I was in my 30s learning all these adolescent things. And I didn't want to tell my Mormon friends how hard it was because I thought they'd just feel like, of course you're lost, you left the truth. The moment it felt truly final, had to do with my Mormon undergarments. They're the most sacred symbol of your faith, and you promised to always wear them. There's a sort of ritual for how you're supposed to throw them out. I didn't know if I owed it that anymore, so they sat in a box for years, until one day, I just threw them in a dumpster. I felt bad about that for years, more than coffee or alcohol or anything else. Skipping that ritual, felt like saying, I mean it. I'm out. I knew I didn't believe in the church. I knew that for sure.
9: But I started to have new doubts. Do you think I'm a bad person?
4: Not at all. You're a, I believe that you're a, a choice daughter of a divine creator I don't think that you're bad at all fundamentally at all no but you've made some decisions that aren't going to lead to happiness but there's virtually nothing that a person has done or can can do in most cases where they can't have that corrected and rectified and fixed But where life is short and there's an eternity that lies ahead so this is not one that can be taken lightly or that you can get wrong.
9: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am um, I am solemn.
4: So. Yeah. Well, I hope someday that you'll find out what you believe.
10: Before we said goodbye, he gave me an update on his latest invention.
4: Yesterday, I experimented making some yogurt, and it didn't work.
9: (laughs) That's okay.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I I love to experiment. And it doesn't always work. But it's important, almost as important to learn what doesn't work as it is to learn what does
10: work. On that point, we still agree.
9: Well, I love you, Dad. I appreciate all the curiosity and faith and all the good things you gave me. I really do. Well, I love you. All right. Tell mommy I said hi. I will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. First You
3: Leave and Then You Go was produced by Karen Duffin. This was one of the first radio stories Karen ever made as a student. Since then, her work has appeared on Radiolab, This American Life, and On the Media. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxei. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya goldberg safer Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Music featured on ReSound is provided by Patient Sounds, a private press record label and book publisher based in Chicago. You can find a track list for this episode along with links to songs from the Patient Sounds catalog at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for Resound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. ReSound listeners, we have big news. This November, Third Coast brings you the fest, Two weeks of podcasts live on stage in venues across Chicago. Shows including Love and Radio, Code Switch, Reveal, and Longform. Plus, Resound Live at Talia Hall, starring Phoebe Judge, the Neo Futurists, Adriana Cardona, and me, Gwen Maxide. To get tickets and see the entire Fest lineup, go to the See you
9: there.